Thank you, Doug. And um, good evening, everyone. My name is Tanisha Taylor, and I'm the co-chair of the Affinity Bar section of the BBA's Diversity Steering Committee. On behalf of the BBA and all the co-sponsors of this event, I would like to welcome you back to our Unheard Voices series. Our co-sponsors for the evening are the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation, the Massachusetts Access to Justice Commission, the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, and the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court on Lawyer Wellbeing. This is part three of our Unheard Voices series and it will amplify the voices of Black and Latinx court users. Tonight's panel is a special panel because it's dedicated to the memory of Chief Justice Ralph D. Gantz of the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. We are dedicating this panel to him because the chief, chief used his position and power to advance access to justice, racial equity, and criminal justice in a myriad of ways. He spoke frequently about the need for civil legal aid, and he led with passion when addressing the systemic barriers impacting self-represented litigants navigating the courts. In his 2019 State of the Judiciary Address, Chief Justice, Justice Gantz said, quote, until we create a world in which all who need counsel in civil cases have access to counsel, we must do all we can to make the court system more understandable and accessible for the many litigants who must represent themselves, unquote. Racial equity within the courts was also at the forefront of the chief's mind. And he was wise in June, 2020, along with his fellow justices, when he issued a letter calling on members of the legal community to quote, recommit ourselves to the systemic change needed to make equality under the law and a during reality for all, unquote. This letter went on to state that, that this must be a time, not just of reflection, but of action. Tonight in honoring the chief's legacy, our goal is that you will not only listen, learn and reflect but also respond to the calls for action that you will hear from our panelists tonight, because each one of us has a responsibility to follow Chief Justice Gantz's lead and to use our power and privilege to advance access to justice and racial equity within the courts. And in his final State of the Judiciary Address in 2019, the Chief also said, quote, this commitment to justice, to excellence, to innovation, is what defines our court family. It is shared by our judges, our clerks, and our staff, our court management, and our unions. It reflects an ethos that we speak up when we see something wrong, that we listen, really listen, that we, re that we respect each other and every person who walks into our 13 courthouses, and that we strive to make our justice system better than it was last year and second to none in the world, unquote. Right before his passing, Chief Justice Gantz recognized the gifts of attorney Sharice Perry, our moderator for the evening, and appointed her to be a new commissioner on the Access to Justice Commission. Sharice M. Perry is also the co-director of the Department of Support Services for the Massachusetts Trial Court's Office of Course Management. Within this position, Sharice provides statewide oversight of the court service center's law library and judicial response system. 
In addition to her departmental responsibilities, Sharice participates in a number of court committees focused on public outreach, court user experiences, trauma and leadership capacity building. Prior to her appointment, Sharice developed and managed the Boston Court Service Center, which was one of the first court service centers to open in Massachusetts. And prior to that, she worked as a staff attorney at Volunteer Lawyers Project and in private practice. Sharice graduated from George Washington University and Suffolk University Law and is a new member of the BBA Delivery of Legal Services Steering Community Committee. She is a trustee on the board of trustees at Roxbury Community College and a past president of the Massachusetts Black Lawyers Association. So please join me in welcoming our moderator, Sharice M. Perry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tanisha. I appreciate it. Um, I just want to um, thank everyone um, for coming. I thank you for that wonderful tribute to Chief Justice Gantz. Um, you know, I think I speak for the entire legal community when I say that he left a mark on our hearts, souls, and spirits, and everyone that he touched, and he is sorely missed. Um, so good evening, everyone. Um, as Tanisha mentioned, I am a co-director in the Department of Support Services for the Massachusetts Trial Court. Um, I am honored and privileged um, to be here tonight as we host the series three of the Amplifying Unheard Voices. I want to thank the BBA um, and all of the other co-sponsors for um, sponsoring this event um, and having us all here today and asking me to moderate. It's a true honor. Um, it brings me joy that we're talking about Chief Justice Gantz um, and particularly a population of people that he committed his legal tenure to, um, to helping, to advocating for, to invested in. Um, and we know that this population very much goes unserved um, and they certainly go unheard. Um, so without further ado, before I get into the introduction of the panelists, uh, I do want to just highlight some statistics to get us started as we talk about the trial court um, and court users. So in 2017, the Massachusetts trial court conducted an access and fairness study. And what we learned in our most recent study was that um, in court users, when they encountered the court um, and in answering the questions, when we surveyed all of the courts, 88.2% of whites, 77.5% of blacks, and 84% of Hispanics found that access um, was sufficient. In both of those situations, black and Latinx communities found the access was um, more challenging than their white counterparts. In civil cases, 87.4% of white, 82.7% of black, and 74% of Hispanic court users found access to be challenging in civil cases. In both situations, Black and Latinx communities found their access to the courts in civil matters to be less than their white counterparts. In the filing of papers, 93.1% of whites, 75.9% of Blacks, and 89.4% of Hispanics found it more challenging um, when filing papers. So in both situations, again, Black and Latinx community court users found the courts more challenging as it related to filing papers than their white counterparts. With that, I want to introduce my esteemed panel um, who are in the trenches, who are working diligently um, every day on behalf of this population of people who I know will speak authentically 
and as passionately as Chief Justice Gantz would all want us to do. So thank you all for being here. I'm so glad that you are here today. I'm going to go through bios. Ventura Dennis, counselor, is a staff attorney at Greater Boston Legal Services uh, in the Corian Reentry Project. She is a recipient of the Boston University School of Law's 2019 Public Interest Alumni Award and the Mass Bar Association's Outstanding Young Lawyer Award for 2017. She engages with low-income client populations through legal clinics, know your rights programs, and direct representation. Um, and if there is anyone that knows things, all things Corey, it is her. Antonio Ennis comes to us uh, as a community organizer from City Life Vita Urbana. He is also a member of Right to the City and Unity Alliances. He is a local business owner, rap artist, clothing designer, mentor, and social change agent. He brings an amplified hip hop voice to the movement with a special interest to motivate and edify young people. He coordinates multiple Canvas teams to make families facing foreclosure or eviction aware of their rights. Next, we have at-large Councilor Mejia. Um, after a historic recount, Councilor Mejia won her seat by a single vote. She is the first Afro-Latina to sit on the Boston City Council. Councilor Mejia is currently the chair of the Committee on Civil Rights and Committee on Small Businesses and Workforce Development. She is focused on influencing and inspiring constituents from all walks of life and be actively engaged in all areas of decision-making processes and to strive for a voice in the city's institutions of power. You can often hear her saying, all means all. Last but certainly not least, attorney Lola Remy is the director of pro bono programs at the Women's Bar Association. Women's Bar Foundation. Uh, attorney Remy contributes her experience as a staff attorney at Volunteer Lawyers Project, where she recruited, trained, and mentored volunteers to represent low-income clients in family law and abuse prevention cases. And prior to joining VLP, she was a staff attorney at Casa Myrna, where she developed and managed a community lawyering program that partnered with community organizations to offer legal clinics to the Boston's underserved neighborhoods. As you can hear from our panelists, they come from a wide range of positions and they are here to talk about all things court users and community. Uh, so we're gonna get right into it. Um, we're gonna first talk about overall court user perspectives. Um, Mr. Ennis, what can you tell us about your, experiencing, your experience navigating court systems in general? Yeah, so the court system has been very tough now with all of these evictions that, that are coming down the pike after the moratorium. They're changing the rules. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the court cases are being done on Zoom now. So for people who, you know, before this happened, nobody really was on Zoom. Now Zoom is the thing. A lot of people don't even know how to navigate on Zoom. A lot of people don't even have computers at home. A lot of people need to go to community centers like libraries things like that. Those have restrictions on them. Um, so it's very hard for people to even know what to do. Uh, people don't know, don't even know their rights, let alone what to do in court. And this is another tactic, I believe, that the court is implementing, one, to, to be able to move these cases along faster, um, give people defaults, which won't allow them to even be able to fight their case. Um, so we got to get smart as a people. We got to get smart. We got to 
educate each other. We got to stop uh, not sharing information and, and lifting each other up because right now is this is when we need it the most. This is when we need each other the most as far as supporting each other. And for particularly the Latinx, Latinx community, which you spend a lot of your time helping, um, particularly in the greater Boston area, do you find that um, their experiences are different um, than perhaps their white counterparts? Absolutely. But I think it's always been like that. This is just, just magnified now because all of the rules that are being changed now are you know, hurting uh, people of color. The research that City Life and MIT shows that the victim fi evictions filings disproportionately is affecting the communities of color. And it's, that's not a new idea, but our research shows that the racist impact continues. So um, I'm gonna move on to Councilor Mejia. Um, you do a lot of constituent services at a, as a city councilor. Um, just to kind of briefly talk about what Ms. Sanders mentioned about just evictions and housing. Are any of those things coming into your office in terms of issues that people are having? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I would also like to add, in addition to the issues of um, housing, we also get a lot of calls from um, families who are experiencing issues around family law and navigating the system, whether it be through issues of child support or um, concerns around legal guardianship, um, how to navigate and, and connect. Um, that, that is also a lot of what we hear in, in, our, um, in our office. But I wanna take a quick little step back in terms of just kind of my own personal experience navigating the court system. You know, I, I think that one of the things, you know, growing up, I was the official translator for my entire family. So at a young age, I would be the one that they would bring with me to the court to translate. And that still happens to this day. And I think while we've made some strides in terms of making um, information more accessible to folks, it's still, it's really hard to navigate that court system. Um, any court system, when you walk in, you don't see yourself reflected in the people who are checking you in. You don't see any signage that is speaking in a language that you can understand. You get bounced from one room to a net, to the next, just to get to the place where you need to be. And by the time you get to that place, you're too late. And I think that navigating the na navigating just the court system in general is overwhelming, particularly for those who don't know how to speak English and, and are already struggling. Um, the other piece of it is that I what we have found too is that there's a privilege because a lot of people know how to read and write in their native language. And we tend to lose sight that there are a lot of people who don't know how to speak, who don't know how to read or write even in their own native language, even in English, right? So in terms of signage, we need to be a little bit more mindful of that, um, of that, of, of information justice and navigating that system and being really super mindful that folks don't know how to read or write. And so we, we, we make that assumption. And the last thing that I would say navigating the system personally um, is that people tend to be a little bit dismissive um, uh, towards people who are who are going into court as though they're doing you a favor just by pointing you in the right direction. And I think that in terms of customer service, um, that is something else that I think we need to address here because we already walk into that space feeling a little bit of feeling oppressed to begin with. And we should not be walking into walking in and out of that space, feeling even more oppressed. Um, and I think that the quality of your experience in that space, regardless of what you're walking into and regardless of what you're carrying into that space in terms of your own 
baggage, you still need to be treated with respect and dignity. And I think that that is something that I hear a lot of the constituents that I work with, and even in my own experience navigating that system that we need to also amplify here in terms of being a person of color navigating the court. Now, just to follow up with that, if in, in either of your experiences, Ms. Ennis and Councilor Mejia, um, in working with individuals that don't speak English at all, um, is there any other additional barriers that you wanna share about what those experiences have looked like or in your community conversations? You know, we live in a very um, language rich state um, that has, you know, we've had a variety of languages come through the court, um, hundreds of interpreters in different languages and dialects, et cetera. Um, so when you work with people that don't speak English at all, kind of what can you say about that experience? I mean, we, we experience a lot of people that are scared to go to court just because of ICE. People that are foreigners that can't speak English, they don't even want to go to court. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of like risking everything just by not going to court. And then people of color, minorities, we already don't like courts because we don't have a history of being successful in courts. So when we go in, we're already going in feeling like losers. And then you're depending on, you know, maybe attorneys for the day that are there that are there to help you out. Um, sometimes people don't know about those, those attorneys that are there. So just the fact that the fear factor is one of the biggest things, the fear and the shame that people come through our doors with, trying to rid them of that, letting them know that they have more rights than they know about, um, is, is a big, big part of not only trying to build the movement because us, at City Life, building a movement is big because that's how we're, order, we're able to do what we do for the last 47 years. And if there's no movement there, then there's nothing to build behind. And there's no other organization in the city of Boston or the state of Massachusetts that does the work that we do. So it's, it's very disheartening when people are scared to go into court because they feel as though not, am I, not only am I risk being evicted, I'm, I'm risking being deported. And mm -hmm. they, came, they came here for a better life. In the first place. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would definitely have to agree of, in regards to that fear factor. And I think that oftentimes that's why some, some sometimes you uh, go in your arrears and sometimes you don't fill out that the, um, the forms. I know that for me, even just filling out a form, if it's not translated in, in, in multiple languages, it, it's cumbersome, right? And I think that the language needs to be updated across all forms, across all languages. I think that there's a privilege again with people who work in the law space that you all speak in, in, in like sometimes I feel like you all are speaking in tongue. Like I don't even understand, I got a Da Vinci code up in here just to understand what it is that was just said to me. And I'm an educated person, right? So I just think in general that, that you know, the pursuance of law 53, 2009, like all of that is so overwhelming for people who don't live that life, right? And so I think that the court system makes it so much harder for people, the everyday person to really navigate if they don't even understand what it is that's, that you guys are trying to communicate to us. Right. So um, Attorney Remy, um, uh, Councilor Mejia mentioned family law, right? 
Um, so we've talked about some housing, we've talked about family law. Uh, you have a background particularly in family law and working with court users on family law related matters. Um, so what would you say in that particular um, area of law, what are the challenges that you see court users encounter? I'd echo the concerns about language access across all languages, including English. Um, people not being able to even understand what they're signing, when they're signing what, because the language is so cumbersome. And um, even when people are able to access services through the court services centers, people are embarrassed to admit that they don't read in English or Spanish, whatever their native language is, even if the information is presented in that language. So uh, I think we've come to a place where we translate a lot of things, not everything, but a lot of things are translated, but a lot of people still don't read, especially self-represented litigants. And so taking that um, burden off of people so that they can deal with the actual issues that bring them to court is tremendously helpful um, because people aren't offering that. People are nodding and going along. Um, and I would say then the second biggest issue is that people feel there's no time for them to have their day in court. So even when people get through all of the barriers, get over their fear of deportation, of being judged, of having to pay a lot of money to park near a court, and get there, then they're just rushed through and they don't get to say what they came and needed to say. And we understand the courts are busy, um, but particularly when families have to go into probation before they go into court, right? The judges, people perceive that the judges don't want to hear the cases. And so people get to go into probation and they sit in a room with a person who is not a judge who looks at their papers and says, well, a judge would never make an order like this based on this. And people without knowing believe that person, right? Because they're an officer of the court, they're in this room, they don't know what the judge is likely to do. And so they agree to things without having had an opportunity to really express themselves in front of a judge and have a judge make an actual decision. So then they agree to things that they can't fulfill and then they default, right? They're found in contempt because they agreed to bring kids to places that they really can't take the kids to. Their car is not that reliable, but somebody in a room told them that this is how it was likely to shake out, which is absolutely not correct, right? Every, especially in family law, every case is so fact specific. Litigants deserve the right to, if they can't come to an agreement between themselves and their co-parent or their former spouse to get to tell the judge what their concerns are and have an order made instead of coming to some agreement. So those are two big things. You know, we also hear uh, and we get a lot at the Women's Bar Foundation and Volunteer Lawyers Project, two people coming to us with um, agreements that they couldn't get out of as part of temporary orders where people were not clear that what they were signing to was not going to be that temporary. And now they're bound to this thing until their child is X numbers of years old. And it's really difficult to get those orders changed. So the language is not, and but not the language that they, to the agreements that they sign is just not clear enough. And I agree with Councillor Mejia that we at the bar speak like everybody understands what we're saying. It's like, oh, it's temporary orders. Just go in and do your best. And we know that that doesn't mean what it actually means. So just adding to that, how do you think, um, you know, family structures, particularly in, you know, Black and Latinx communities, ethnicities, culture, poverty, you know, how does that kind of change? Because, you know, different cultures have different family structures, um, you know, how people are raised in different homes, all of that kind of factors in. So what have you seen in terms of 
um, court users' experiences that are often not the traditional American, you know, kind of blue book way. <laughs> Yeah, I wish we had three hours. I'll just say, <laughs> very, we, um, <laughs> we don't. I, I, um, yes, family structures vary widely in the population that we serve. I'll just give you one example. I mean, there are many, right? Um, but a very common order of the court is for parents. So I work primarily in domestic violence cases. So that's the perspective that I have, but where co-parents do exchange of children at um, police stations. And for our clients who are Black families raising Black children, especially Black sons, who struggle with having to take their Black sons to a police station to drop them off to their Black dads is a problem, right? But that's, what, that's what's convenient, that's what's easy, that's what we do. And so the courts say, well, if you can't agree on another place, then this is just what it's going to have to be. And culturally, that's debilitating for a person, right? And so our clients will then struggle with, well, then how do I get my child to see their parent without having to uh, acculturate them basically to go into the police station every week. Little things, little things like that. <laughs> you know, there's so many small minor facts that change um, that, you know, we know culture, um, every culture is different um, and you have to, it's, it's not forcing people to assimilate to a specific way. It's kind of meeting people where they are and understanding that, you know, certain cultures have certain ways of life. You know, we oftentimes talk about looking directly in their eyes and culturally that's disrespectful, right? Um, and so kind of always being mindful of that. So um, I'm gonna move on to, you know, as we kind of um, talked about police, um, and, and slowly making our way to kind of, um, you know, the criminal space a tad bit. Um, Attorney Dennis, talk to us about um, Corey, Corey Forms, reentry, collateral consequences of um, incarceration. What, is that, what does that look like for court users when they are trying to reenter into society? Um, they have a Corey. There's so many civil collateral consequences of that. You know, what are those? You know, what is that? Tell us, you know, what is that and, and what, what happens to court users? Yeah, so unfortunately, when people are reentering society and they've been incarcerated, there are barriers all around, not just in job security, but also in finding housing. Um, a lot of family, a lot of their family may live in subsidized housing and they're not allowed to be there or that family could face eviction. And so the insecurity of housing, insecurity of jobs, um, the inability to find programs that will accept them. There are some like even community college level programs that people wanna get into um, to better themselves. But they tell them like, if you have a record, you we don't want you in this program because we know once you complete it, you're not gonna be able to find a job in this field. Um, and that's a lot of healthcare fields. That's a lot of service industries um, that unfortunately do regularly do criminal background checks and not only see convictions on records, but also dismiss charges. So it's, it's a huge uphill battle for people who are trying to turn their life around and recommit themselves to working hard and being part of their communities. Um, 
it, and COVID, of course, has severely impacted that even more because there is limited number of jobs that exist right now. And then the ones that do mean that they're putting themselves at risk, their families at risk, their health at risk by going on public transportation, by serving um, food or working in the healthcare field where they face numerous dangers because of COVID. So it's really hard right now, especially for people who are trying to get it together and find the resources that they need to. Um, in the Cori Project, we try to hook people up with job training services that we know exist, but a lot of people, when they get out, they don't know that any of these programs exist, that we exist to help people sell their records. And so it's just a constant trying to stay above water in um, Black communities when they're trying to work hard and move forward with their lives. So there are forms, um, you know, GBLS has clinics, um, monthly clinics in which they help people and pair them with um, lawyers to sell their court records. I'm sure in some of those you've had court, you know, litigants or people come to you and say, I tried to do this on my own. Um, you know, what have they said about the, the trying to understand how to sell their record on their own, right? Because ideally, you know, we have forms that should be able to help people do this by themselves, right? So when you've been running these clinics, what have people said to you about trying to do it on their own? Yeah, so on Mass Legal Help, we have um, booklets and forms you can fill out to go to court and sell your court on your own. Unfortunately, as many other panelists have echoed today, people go to court and they experience hostile clerks, people who tell, who try to give them advice on their case and don't actually understand what the law says and the facts of their specific circumstances. And so they get really discouraged. They, they come in, they're excited. They're like, well, I have the forms. I know this is what I'm supposed to do. And the clerk may say, well, I don't believe this is worth your time. I don't believe this is the right thing for you to do. And so first they face that. Then once they are able to go into a courtroom and explain to the judge why they meet the legal standard to seal their records and why they know that they do, they may be um, trying to over explain things that a judge isn't used to hearing because they're pro se litigant. And so they're used to, uh, judges are used to dealing with lawyers who are able to communicate fast and to the point exactly what they mean. But pro se litigants who are not used to talking in public in front of a full courtroom have to mm -hmm. deal with explaining themselves and and dealing with sometimes a prosecutor on the other side who is objecting to them just sealing their record. And so that may cause people to be more hostile and defensive about why they're there in the first place. And so it becomes hard once you're even in the courtroom saying what you need to say to the judge because you're uncomfortable, you're faced with anxiety and you don't know how to navigate all of these spaces you've been thrown into. So you mentioned pairing up with lawyers. Now, can you tell us, you add a lawyer to the equation. How does that experience, what does that experience look like? So it's, it's night and day experience because you, now you have someone else who is able to advocate for you, able to guide you through the court process, but also kind of be a barrier to you communicating what you need to to the judge. Like I said, if you're not used to doing that, 
it can be really intimidating to explain everything you need to fast and um, to the point. And so having a lawyer there to guide you is great. We know that um, when we send clients on their own, because we don't go to those particular courts, they, are, they aren't as successful as when they have a lawyer there in their corner, um, able to be patient with the court system and um, helping them navigate exactly what to say, where to file, where to go. Because as people have said, you can be moved around the whole courthouse and not be in the right place. Um, and you're dealing with security guards and court personnel who are very seasoned and who don't have a lot of patience for new people who don't know how to navigate the system, unfortunately. Councilor Mejia, did you want to add anything to that? Well, yes, it was. <laughs> I thought you raised your hand. <laughs> I did. I always got something to say. Um, no, I, you know, I, I think that whole idea of speaking on your behalf, like uh, for yourself and, and not knowing how to do so. I remember my own uh, situation. You know, my mom raised my three nieces and um, there's some, sometimes there are things in terms of what, um, Sharice had mentioned in terms of like the stigma and some of the family structures, right? Um, when when the when a judge asks you for um, documentation for the father of, of of the of the child, and you know you have to tell the judge in front of everybody there um, that the the father is unknown, right? There's just there's like that that cultural insistent um, sensitivity that lacks in the court system, and so. As a as a as someone who's trying to navigate that system, how do you how do you talk about what's happening in your life, and how do you try to get gain custody? This is just my own experience with my niece. We were trying to gain custody of my niece, and there was a lot of loopholes that we had to jump through just to be able to do that. And it something that could have probably just taken probably a week or so ended up taking so much longer just because we kept having to go back in front of the judge because we didn't have all of the information that we needed. And then, you know, just the whole, the, the stigma around having to speak for yourself in, in, in public about certain things that you may not know about. I just think that we just need to think a little bit more about how we could, how we can support families who have non-traditional structures um, in ways that do not further shame them um, for whatever decisions have been made in, in, in their immediate circle. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I do know that no, that's- Absolutely, and, and in that specific case that you had in terms of getting custody, did you, um, were you ever able to get pro bono counsel or did you kind of navigate the whole process on your own? So thank you to you, <laughs> a little bit of assistance, um, but for the most part, you know, I think it was just in terms of timing and trying to get the pro bono lawyer, we were never able to seek um, representation throughout the whole entire journey, just because it was ad hoc, ad hoc, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, triaging. Um, and, and so it was, it was just, it was, it, it made it a lot more complicated than what it had to be. And then also the fact that my mom did not speak English, um, having to, even, even waiting for a translator, y'all, y'all think just because you have some court interpreters, you're good, you can mark off the checkbox. No, that is not that easy because you're gonna have to wait your turn, wait for someone to be available. And even sometimes those translators that are there, um, oh, it, I think that there's something about being a native speaker that's very different than just a, a, just a regular- Interpreter like a, that's learned the language. Yeah, so I, I just think that there's a lot of barriers. There was a lot of barriers in our case uh, navigating that particular situation. 
Were you able to, during your any of your observations, see any attorneys providing kind of services that you think may have changed how you navigated the system if you had an attorney? Yes, yeah, so Google is the best thing on the world, but it's not an attorney. You can't Google every single thing that comes across your, um, your desk. But I, I do think that when we were able to sit with a lawyer who walked us through the documents um, so that we knew exactly what we needed to do um, and the steps, we, we were able to walk away with very specific next steps. That was really helpful. But I think not having someone consistently with you through through the entire journey made it harder. I don't know if that answers your question, but. No, absolutely. So um, Attorney Remy, you've had, again, family law and now you're at the Women's Bar Foundation and you're connecting um, you know, court users to pro bono representation. What could you say about the difference that, you know, people come to you probably haven't filed some stuff. Maybe they come to you having gone through a court service center to do the initial paperwork, and now they're looking for representation for their actual hearing. Kind of what, what does that look like for your court users or what, or, um, you know, their clients, litigants, um, or what have they communicated to you about the difference in terms of having representation versus not having representation? The first thing we hear is the level of respect that people feel like they receive changes both from court staff and from opposing parties and opposing counsel. So I'm saying it to my fellow folks in bar here, Working with uh, opposing parties who are unrepresented and being unkind and mean and unsympathetic and just downright disrespectful is a no. <laughs> it's a terrible look and being bullied by attorneys when a person is pro se, we hear that a lot. And we do get um, people coming in with agreements that they signed or proposed agreements that were drafted by counsel that is so unfair and so unreasonable. You know a judge would never allow it, but the fact that an attorney would propose that another person sign that is just abhorrent. Um, but also just the being able to understand what the process is and all of their options, because people think they want what they want. You know, somebody just wants a divorce, they want custody, but they really also want to understand how the process works and what all of the options are. People are coming, like we're saying, with different family backgrounds and they appreciate having somebody who can explain to them that it's not just, well, you have to send your kid, you have to bring your kids to the police station. Like people appreciate having an attorney who can explain that there are some middle ground and there are some things you can compromise on and things that you never have to compromise on. People appreciate knowing what the consequences of agreeing to certain things or participating and engaging in certain behavior might be so that they don't do those things. Right? When people are in contempt or they're violating orders or things like that, it's not that people don't respect the law, but people didn't understand the gravity of what they were um, entering into. And so it really makes a difference in that way as well. Just being able to comply with the orders, feeling like their voice was heard and that what they've agreed to uh, was something that they understood and not were blindsided by because three months later they were told, oh, what this meant was something completely different. But I would say in the last two seconds to say this, please, if you're against an unrepresented person, don't be a bully to them. I, I just... Absolutely. Um, so, you know, talking about agreements and agreeing to things and um, having opposing counsel on the other side, we know that um, housing court 
court users are 92, 93% unrepresented on the tenant side and about, um, I think it's 70% on the landlord side. So Mr. Ennis, talk to me about kind of, you know, I think you've had a prior situation in which you had counsel, um, but you clearly work with a huge population of people that are walking into um, the court system unrepresented. What does it look like to have counsel versus not have counsel? Well, to have counsel, obviously, when you have counsel, you're going to be a little bit more confident. Um, you're dealing with somebody that knows the law. Sometimes we get members who don't want to speak to an, uh, an organizer because they feel like an organizer doesn't have the knowledge of, a, um, an, of an attorney. However, we have this real unique method that we call the sword and the shield. And, and, and the sword represents public pressure and the shield represents the legal team. And we work together which is a three-legged stool, the sword, the shield, and the offer being the third leg. And we use the, 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 the sword out in the streets to create pressure when the attorneys can't, can't create that pressure in court and vice versa. So a lot of times people don't understand a lot of cases could be won without even going to court. I'm an example of that. I'm an example of a person who fell into foreclosure that didn't know anything about it, didn't know nothing about it. Going in the banks to meet, meant going to cash checks from Def Jam and Interscope my whole life. That's what a bank meant to me. Savings, putting money in a bank, to me, was putting money in a shoebox underneath my bed. So when all of this foreclosure stuff hit, it was new to me. And I found myself at City Life. But when I found myself at City Life, I already had a voice from making music, going around the world. So I had a voice, but I wasn't using it in that arena. When I seen all of these people that were so scared from, from their landlords and landlords would, you know, do things like set your doormat on fire to scare you out of there. And the, all of these things that people used to put up with. And I used to be like, wow, if a landlord did that to me and my family, I don't know. It, it wouldn't be no calling the police and things like that. But that's just me. But anyway, I, I knew that somebody had to stay here after I won my property back by using my music and my video making ability and going to CEO's houses on, on Beacon Hill in, in Virginia, North Carolina, Oakland. I was going to their houses with hundreds of people. So when I came into the movement, it was, it was about creating pressure on a whole new level, level instead of just going in front of a bank with picket signs and they're up on the 30th floor sipping coffee, looking at us protesting. And then the day goes by and nothing's nothing. So creating pressure and getting people to understand how the process works. And even though if you don't have legal representation, it doesn't mean you can't win your case. You just have to be willing to fight for the roof that's over your head. And that's part of the battle of, of us being, we talked about culture. Yeah, we, it's all different cultures, but we're all facing the same issue. So we got to get past looking at each other in a lot of different ways and understand you're, we're looking at each other's problems in a mirror every time we turn around. Right. And so for me as an organizer, I'm a little bit more, I'm a different kind of organizer. People, when I first came here, people was like, you're not an organizer, you wear jewelry. You got on a Rolex chain, you got gold teeth. Organizers don't wear that. And I'm like, well, I don't know what organizers y'all was talking about, but this is what this organizer's wearing. Don't judge me on that. And, and, and because I come the way I come, I've won a lot of cases and, and a lot of people have to understand you, you can't be scared. 
you just can't be scared because that's the fear is what they that's what they work on and that's what you're seeing in the courthouses from the moment you come in the courthouse they they inject you with that fear immediately with even more fear than what you're already coming with so yeah it pisses me off and i get I'm gonna stop because I don't want to take up too much time. But yeah, it does. No, so you know, I, yeah. I, you know, we've we've talked about um, without representation. We've talked about with representation. Um, you know, we've talked briefly about those forms um, and those barriers of just walking through the door. Um, you know, elaborate. You know, what what is that? You you are in the housing space. You are a tenant. You've had the landlord do a lot of things. And maybe you, your legal status here in the States, you know, is, is compromised. Um, maybe you don't have legal status and you have a situation in which your landlord is trying to evict you and you know, or you feel what they're doing is absolutely wrong. What is that initial barrier when you know you have to go to court to defend this particular action? What is, from the moment you have to leave your house, what does that initial barrier look like? Well, we don't, you know, we, we defend anybody that comes to us pretty much. But the barrier is just, like I said earlier, the barrier is being scared of it turning into more than just an eviction. Not only for you, but your son, your husband, your brother, your uncle, other, other parts of your family members that came up here. You know, a lot of times foreigners send a few people up to set up and then you send for the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. So you're already scared. Like, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. My mother was scared when we first came here for, for, for getting us deported because white kids wanted to bother me and my brother until we had to fight them and, and show them that it, we wasn't going for it. So parents are scared and they're getting separated from their kids like crazy. So you don't want to go in there because you don't, it, what starts out as an eviction is a court case now, is a lockup now, is deportation now, is the division of your family now. So it's a, it's, just wipes out a family, just wipes you out. Could, could I say something, Sharice, real quick? Absolutely, this is, this is an all panelist question. So you all chime in as you see fit. Yeah, you know, um, so let me just tell you about that fear and, and how it manifests and how it shows up and how it impacts families, right? Um, I, I will have to say this is that in my own experience navigating this particular system, there were times when my own mom would say, you know what? Don't say anything because if you say anything, they're gonna take a, they're gonna take you away, right? And I'm and I'm gonna just talk a little bit about something here. You know, when I was when I was younger, I um I attempted suicide, right? And you know that my mom was so afraid of that action that she didn't even take me to the hospital because she was afraid that if she took me to the hospital, that they were gonna take me away from her. And I lived with that thinking that my mom did not love me for so long, but it was because she was trying to protect me because she was afraid that if anything was to come out that they were gonna remove me from her home. And the fact that people are living in fear of a system that is supposed to protect and care for us speaks volumes to this conversation that we're having here today needs to be unpacked 10 times fold because people should not be afraid of the very same system that is supposed to protect and serve justice for you, right? So I, I share this and, I, and not to get to TMI with my own personal experience, but I just want you to understand 
the impact that these court systems and these systems have on people of color to the point that we oftentimes sacrifice our own livelihood and put our livelihoods at risk because we're so afraid of entering that, that building. And so if people who are listening to this really think about, you know, what do you want people to think, feel, and do as a result of your interaction with them? And if you can't, if you can't, if you're not doing this because it's in your heart, then you need to find another job because working in the court system, it's really, you have to find, it's the law, yes, but we need to add a little bit of compassion. We need to understand the, the mentality that we here as people of color are experiencing every day and the baggage that we carry into that institution and to be a little bit more um, culturally sensitive to those wounds that we have yet to heal. Um, Ventura or um, Attorney Remy? Well, yeah, I'll speak to the, um, the one of the barriers of uh, accessing the courts and fear of, because I'm in the family law space, is loss of custody of a child is a tremendous barrier. And people, I think just about everybody in that courthouse is a mandated reporter, not really, but people go in and they file complaints against their abusers. And all of a sudden, they're the ones who are being judged for having let the abuse happened, which further traumatizes and further abuses them. Um, people now have 51 A's filed against them because they disclose that their abusive partner um, has done certain things in their homes. And people are terrified. And the stories get out in the communities because these are communities that are fending for themselves without counsel, right? So nobody's out there putting the fires out that it's okay, and I couldn't say it's okay. People aren't even calling the police now. We're seeing a reduction in 209As. People are not seeking orders of protection because people are finding that they're not being granted. Um, people are finding that there is no support and that anytime they bring up issues, especially around abuse, uh, there is a recent study, but I can tell you that our clients report the same whenever um, a pro se litigant mentions that there's been abuse, especially against the child, but against themselves, their chances of losing custody is exponentially higher than if they go in and just play along. So then people don't disclose what's happening in their households um, to a system that is supposed to be protecting them, especially the children, best interest of the child is what they say. And then people are getting their children taken away or having their whole lives opened up. You know, clients will say, and it goes around, we never call DCF and we never call the police. And you're thinking, wow, these are communities that are experiencing so much hardship already. And to not be able to call DCF, which is a different, different from the courts, but which is supposed to be providing services for families where people are afraid to call and afraid to call the police for all kinds of reasons is just not acceptable. So even when they get though beyond those barriers, they get in front of a judge and they're ready to tell their story. If they get in front of a judge, mostly they go to the probation. The probation officer is, oh no, you probably shouldn't have done that. You know, well, I'm gonna have to report that, you know, and the person says, oh, I was just telling you why I'm here and why I got the restraining order. Well, just so you know, I have to report that. And all of a sudden they've got um, bigger issues. And so people are telling their friends that when they hear that in quarter, they're getting these orders and then taking those stories back to the communities with them. Um, Ventura. Yeah, I, one thing um, in the Cori sphere that we see a lot about people coming in and stealing your records is there are a lot of mistakes on people's records. Um, 
which seems really small, but it can be really big because there can be an open case from like 20 years ago that never got closed because of a clerical error that someone isn't aware of until they change jobs or for some reason it never came up until recently at their job. So then they're facing losing their job over a court's mistake. And so people go in and they try to fix these things and they don't know where to start. They don't know who to talk to. And as many people have mentioned, the lack of compassion from the court staff means that they're encountering people who are saying, well, I don't know, and, and that's it. And not saying, okay, here, go to probation or do this or do that. Um, unfortunately, in Dorchester Court and Roxbury Court, a lot of clerk personnel do not take the extra time to explain how to do things. Some of them don't know how to do things themselves. And so it's really hard having people from the community come in asking for help and being told nothing or being told the wrong thing. And that makes them distrust the system even more because they're like, well, I went in, I asked for help and this person directed me to get help in some way and that was wrong. And so now you want me to go back and deal with these people who don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, then I encounter clients like that all the time who have been pushed around the system so much, told the wrong things because people have the wrong the wrong information and are dealing with trying to correct mistakes that aren't their own and it can be very overwhelming if like people have mentioned you don't speak english isn't your first language you don't have um, a lot of literacy skills you don't have a lot of patience dealing with people because you know i don't know how to quantify that but some people just don't have the patience to sit and listen over and over to someone who's not telling them what they want to hear and so that's huge barriers we see of people trying to fix their record even after you know something was supposed to be closed, supposed to be dismissed, supposed to be finished. And it, it continues on in our communities because it's not being addressed. So we are coming up to the end. Um, and so I would ask you all, um, I'll start with Councilor Mejia to just take you know, a minute or so just to, you know, what, what would you ask the court to do? What would be your action um, step for them to kind of change, you know, or a recommendation about how they can make the system work based on your experience and what you've kind of gone through? Unmute. <laughs> All this time I want to be, I want to be heard. Um, <laughs> So, so, so first of all, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to be here. I think that this is part one of, I think, many conversations that need to happen in particular to this issue. Um, and so, I, you know, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley always says that those who are close to the pain should be closest to the power. I think that I would really ask the court to spend some time doing a real full assessment and a survey of how people are experiencing um, the court and then really putting a series of, of um, recommendations in place that you will be held accountable to in terms of like fixing. Um, because if you want people to navigate a system that was never really intended for us to succeed in anyways, um, then we, we need to really be honest about that. And then we also need to, um, for those folks who are working in that space, need to check their own racial biases, right? Um, you can't say that you are not racist um, and then turn around and, and then dismiss people and, and shame them for, for whatever realities they're carrying into that space. So I think that we, we have a responsibility and an opportunity 
to really evaluate not just ourselves, um, but also looking at the systems that are in place right now and determining whether or not they're really working. And if they're not, let's fix them. And as someone who is a city councilor now, I really do look forward to working in partnership with you all, especially around language access. Um, and I believe that information justice, and I don't even really think about it as language access. I think about this work as information justice. Um, and it's not just about interpretation and translation. I really am looking to the core to be super mindful of folks who don't know how to read and write in any language. Um, so I think that there's a lot of work to do in that space. And thank you again for giving me the opportunity to be here. Information justice. I, that, I, had to, I might have to use that. Um, it's mine. You can use it though. <laughs> Um, Mr. Ennis, talk to us. What's your what's your action for the core? What's your recommendation? Um, unmute too. Yeah, Peter Desmond says in his book, "Evicted, um, eviction causes poverty," and that's just you know not just the other way around. The originally the courts were supposed to handle K three cases all day, all week. And that only makes sense if the tenant is, is not putting up any defense. So that's not happening right now. We're seeing the courts wanting to get all of these cases pushed out because they're overloaded. So they're not going to spend a lot of time on cases. We're going to need legislation. We're going to need the, uh, Bill H5018 passed that is going to provide protection for homeowners and tenants. We're gonna ask them to extend the moratorium, the federal moratorium past the 31st. After December the 31st this month, it's gonna be ridiculous going into 2021. So the courts have to have some type of extension because if there's not, this is where you're seeing all the aggressive behavior and them wanting to just get the cases in and out. So they're not looking at cases the way they should be and people are not gonna get their fair share. So if they don't, if they don't, readjust the rules, extend the moratorium, pass this bill, then it's gonna just be more of the same. And it's just gonna be more of us out in the streets fighting, protesting and trying to get people, trying to keep people in their homes. Absolutely. Um, Ventura, what's your call to action? Well, I think like many people have said, the court needs to take all of this feedback and hold people accountable. I think that's where, you know, the most action and change will take place. If if people are held to a standard and held accountable. I, you know, I've complained about I've complained about clerk's office, I've complained about court personnel a lot. Um, as a young attorney. And unfortunately, it's just like, there's no follow up, there's no recourse for having bad experience with people who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, helping our communities. And so that's what I would ask for some forms of accountability towards people who aren't doing what they should be doing. Lola? I bring two things. I actually asked my colleagues who are members of the Domestic and Sexual Violence Council, what I should, you know, what are some of the calls that they have? And we have two very modest things. One is language access is sliding all the way back. Uh, today in our DSCC meeting, I heard of an attorney who witnessed a wife being sworn in as an interpreter for her husband in a court proceeding. Uh, that's the most egregious thing I've heard, but uh, it's not that far <laughs> more egregious than other things. So where the interpreters, uh, mostly a lot of hearings are virtual. Why aren't appropriate interpreters for the correct languages 
um, being dialed in or called for the hearings. Also signage at the courts, um, small ask, but a lot of the courts are closing for days at a time because of COVID and other reasons. The signage on the door is tiny. It's only in English and it says closed and people are approaching and pulling the doors and the doors are not open. Please make some signs in languages <laughs> more than English, make them big. What about processes? You know, fam family, you know, housing court is statutory. So oftentimes the processes are pretty much the same. It's a smaller specialized court, um, but family law has so many different case types, right? Um, you know, in Superior Court and Boston Municipal Court, there's so many different case types. What would you say about case processes? Um, we'd heard that the Chief Justice was going to work on streamlining some of the cases that are coming in. We're waiting for some of that to happen so that not all cases that need to be of the probate and family court are not going onto these 18 month calendars where parties who really have little assets, you know, no children or anything like that are having to wait so long for hearings. So we are hoping that there's coming soon a process where people who are filing who are um, just two people looking to terminate their relationship with one another are on a different track than individuals who have four or five kids with, you know, houses that need to be sold and things like that. So uh, somehow separating how people get through the process, because it doesn't make much sense for some families to be going through the exact same process as other families. And same with, you know, contested versus uncontested um, guardianships and things like that. Like it still takes so long for people to get through the court process. Meanwhile, some of us are waiting for hearings on simple motions that we just want heard, but there's a backlog because there are these processes. So you have to do, um, you have to file these motions for temporary orders and then you have to try them out for a while and then you have to wait to get. And, you know, some people are just like, it's fine. We've been separated for 10 years. We're just, we're just filing now, you know. We have 10 years to go. <laughs> um, Ventura or um, Antonio, any comments on court processes and kind of what your call to action would be on that? My call to action is gonna always be to educate people. Without educating people on these housing issues and their rights, we're spinning wheels. And that's what I do every day. I send out links to tenants that call me every day. I, the first thing I send them is your rights. First thing I need you to understand is you have rights before we even take any step anywhere. And so that's the beginning of trying to bring people out their shells. And I say this because whatever we're trying to do, whatever we're trying to get changed, it's not gonna happen without massive amounts of people out in the streets lifting their voices. The people who are being affected, not, not so much the organizers and the city councilors and, the, and people of that stature, the, the people. Those are the people that have to be in the street. And a lot of times we don't want to get in the streets because we're happy with being on Facebook. We're happy with being distant and on social media. And we know how to use Facebook like the back of our hand. We know how to use all these other elements of, of media. But when it comes time to save ourselves, we go dumb. We go blank. And that has to stop because they know that the other side knows that that's how it goes. Give them a color TV, give them an iPhone and they're good. We could do whatever we want to do to them. And, and, and I'm telling you, that's a big, big problem within our community. And that's what I talk about to people because that's what I know. And I'm only gonna talk about what I know and what I see. And my call to action is always gonna be for the, my community, let's go fight. We know how to fight each other. We know how to do that very well. We know how to wipe each other out. We got to go fight another enemy now. 
And, and we don't even got to bring any guns and we don't got to bring any knives. We got to bring our body, our mind, our heart and our soul and go fight. And that's just the, that's my call to action. Wake up and know that we got a bigger fight on our hands than the one in our community against each other. Right. Yeah, I, I was just going to add about the court processes. It seems like education needs to happen within the court itself, um, the court personnel could use training and could use not you know not just about how the law works and how the forms work and how to process people but also how to deal with people as we've said over and over tonight um having compassionate towards others dealing with others respectfully in a customer service setting i i unfortunately don't think that a lot of court personnel believe that that's what they're working in but no you are serving people and you're supposed to be helpful and so i think i don't know if it's some type of training or education can go on behind the scenes within these courts um it is something that i have asked for before but that would be something that could help out everyone in our community as well as the court run smoothly if they have people who are more positive, de positively dealing with them during the difficult parts of their lives. So that's all. So um, one very last question that came up from the audience is, um, I'm very excited about the new Chief Justice, uh, Kimberly Budd. Um, and you know what she will bring in terms of her lived experience, um, her legal scholarship, um, and everything she brings to the table. Um, and so, you know, if anybody just wants to kind of answer, you know, how do you think and how do you feel um, that Chief Justice Bud um, will kind of step in after Chief Justice Gantz and kind of move this conversation about access to justice and and fairness in the in the trial court. I'll just say, I mean, for me, I don't, I'm not big on political figures um, because I always feel like they say what they're supposed to say to get elected. Um, I do like her. I do. I definitely like her. I, I'm hoping that she's going to be that one to, um, you know, to tilt the tables in the way that they need to go for, for, for her people, for our people. Um, because it's it's just important that we you know we we have that representation. People look at it all the time like like we're being I don't know. I just feel like we need our representation sometimes. Like we've lived all these years and just we've never had people in positions to speak for us, and we're still crying out for that. And a lot of times when that happens, we get people that look like us and they get in there, and everybody like I always say everybody has their own dollar amount or their own agenda, and when when it hits that, then you forget about everybody else, you forget, and that's the problem. So, you know, I, with political figures, I'm, I just sit back and wait. And I'll just add this. We got Biden and Harris in there because people felt like something had to be done. We did it. Now, please let's not sit back now and act like we did it and it's done. It's not done. We have to hold them accountable now because, yes, that campaign said everything we wanted them to say, like they always do. And they get in there and then you, you can't get a meeting or you can't, you, nothing. And so, yeah, we got to hold them accountable really like more than the, the guy that's going out. We got to hold the new ones coming in even more. And we can't let the fire die down because the fire is here. The fire from, from George Floyd on up, 
the fire that has been lit has, has caused this world and a lot of people of color to wake up in a sense to understand where we are. We just have to not, we can't give that power back now. It's, it's critical. Anyone else before I close? I, I just want to echo um, what you said about being hopeful about Chief Justice Bud. I mean, she's the first Black woman to be appointed as a Chief Justice in Massachusetts, and it's it's a great opportunity, and it's it's for her to move us forward and be progressive on the bench, but also for Massachusetts, it's it's a great symbol that we are moving in the right direction. Um, and so I am hopeful that she will continue to honor Gant's legacy and move us progressively forward within the courts and on the bench. That's it. Lola? I echo that and um, both honoring Chief Justice Gant and the legacy of her own family. You know, she's got, we've got a lot of expectations riding on this uh, bud appointment. Um, so, you know, sometimes I hear things are well, you know, she's a, she's a black judge. Is she here for the black people? I hope so. Right? Like there's always this like, oh, well, if a person is from a diversity group or something like that, then they have to be race neutral in a way that white people don't have to be, right? Like a, a white judge is just gonna be a judge for the people and inherently not biased. <laughs> but when it's a black person, then we hope that she's not going to be for the black people. Well, so I hope she's not afraid to step into that role and to really speak from that experience and perspective because we do see that too often. Absolutely. One thing. Sure. I don't like political figures, but I, can I tell y'all one political figure that I love? <laughs> sure. I love Rachel Rollins. To me, <laughs> you know, to me, to me, she is the realest to ever come along in that position. She's real. Mm -hmm. I love her. I hope she stays in that position forever. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, well, before I close, I'm gonna end with a quote, but I do wanna say thank you very much to you all um, for coming here and for bringing your energy, um, your perspective, um, you know, your light to this conversation. It's, you know, it's not over. <laughs> you know, we still have to keep the torch lit. Um, and we now have Chief Justice Bud at the helm and we're gonna continue to move um, you know, move forward and continue to do what we do and not be sidetracked. So I'm going to end with a James Baldwin quote, which is, I think, appropriate for this conversation. And it goes like this, ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. I'll say it again. Ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. And so when I read that quote and I think about what that means, um, you know, in the legal field, we have this thing where we say ignorance of the law is not a defense, right? <laughs> um, well, neither is ignorance of the issues that impact the lives of those who you are all here to serve and whatever capacity that you hold power. I'm gonna say it differently. If you possess privilege and a position of power and you are responsible for the administration of justice. You have a duty and a responsibility to know who you are serving. Ignorance is not a defense. I thank you all for coming this evening. I thank you to my panelists. I thank you to the sponsors and I thank you to everyone um, that helped put this program together.
Thank you all and have a good Can you share that with us? Absolutely. Um, have a good evening, everyone, and thank you all.